welcome you to Doxodeo Hatfield, a multi-ethnic family on mission, passionate about Jesus, passionate about community, and passionate about serving the city of Chwaneka. Dr. Hatfield, let's open up a Bible together to the book of John, chapter 17. So we are continuing through this journey in the book of John, this man who walked with Jesus, who saw him, who experienced him, who writes down with passion something of the life of this most, I think, compelling man to ever have lived, most compelling person to ever have lived. And we started in the second term with a series called Come and See, and now in the second term we've been asking the question about more life. Um, and that's not because we want to have a catchy title. It's because one of the greatest themes in this book is the theme of life. And not just the Greek word bios, life, like I'm alive, I'm breathing, I'm existing. But it uses this word zoe, life, more than 40 times. Abundant life, life to the full, God quality life. That's what Jesus says, I come to give to all those who would receive it. And so today we're going to ask the question, as we do every week, something, some aspect of this life. What is the ultimate pleasure in life. What's the ultimate pleasure in life? And I don't have 10 minutes to unpack it for us culturally, but can I just say, I think hundreds and thousands of years of human history and today in this city, this morning, in this room, can we just be honest and say that money, sex, power, those are still the three main highways to pleasure. That's it, friends. Those three things, the bucks, the babes, and the business, I'm not sure what's the other one. That's, that's the way that you still that you still find people giving up who they are to find pleasure in. So what did Tony Montana, Scarface, beyond all of us, maybe one or two people have seen that. Uh, what did he famously say? Al Pacino, in this country, you make the money first, right? And then when you get the money, you get the power. And then when you get the power, you get the woman, right? I love there's a meme where Super Mario, you realize that's his life actually as well. It's about getting the money and then the power, and then the woman. So, no Super Mario fans out there, it's fine. <laughs> Taiki. This is it, friends. This is what our, our lives are centered around for most people. This is what our, our almost culture says. Without this, you will not have a fulfilling life. So, what money can get you sexuality and sexual pleasure. People use sex to get money. Influence attracts money. Money creates influence. People want to become affluent and rich so that they can have influence and sex. These are the main ways that we say, man, if you want a life that is pleasurable, that's fulfilling, that's joyful, these are the ways that you get it. Now, the issue with this is, is we've known this forever, and yet we still go after it in this way. It's not a secret anymore, but I often think about it in this way. When our eldest, Abigail, we've got three kids, when she was still in diapers, we went to the beach for the first time, and literally as we sat her down on the sand, she took one of these little scorpies, and she literally just started, you know, feeding herself sand by the bucket loads. We were so freaked out as parents. We were like, what is happening right now? What are all the parents around us thinking? Like, we're failing at parenthood. We couldn't figure it out. 
And besides the fact that, you know, the diapers that evening were incredibly interesting, the other side of that was that one of our friends, she's a doctor, and she said, you know what's happening is that there's something instinctual in a child that says there are some micronutrients that I'm missing, that I'm needing, and so their best attempt at getting it is to eat the sand. And I guess the laughable part of this is how much sand do you have to eat to get what you think you need, right? You would have to eat the whole beach, and still you would be hungry, right? And yet, you and I live exactly like that. Money, sex, and power. I will eat the sand until I get what I think I need. And you know, we always say death and taxes. Those are the two fundamentals of life. You can add a third one. No one has ever gone into this world going after these things as primary things in their life and ever come away satisfied. No one. And so, we're going to look at what I think Jesus so unashamedly says about this. Into a world of money, sex, and power. In this city, that is your status. If you don't drive a certain car, if you don't live in a certain house, if you are not at least trying to get those things, working for those things, if you are a woman in your 40s and 50s and you don't have a certain kind of body, you've had some work done, you don't live in a certain area of our city, you're not a person of esteem, your kids don't go to certain schools, you are seen as a certain kind of person. What do men ask each other when we meet each other? I was at a rugby game yesterday for my boy. Everyone asked me, so what do you do for a living? Money, sex, power, and Jesus comes and he gives such a very different answer. Unfortunately, we're going into the second half of this prayer that Jesus prays before he is about to be crucified, and it's John 17. This is one of the most thick passages, probably in all of the book of John. So I kind of feel like J.D. Greer, when he speaks about this passage, he says, you kind of feel like a mosquito at a nudist beach. You just ask yourself, where will I begin? Um, so unfortunately, we can't go through all of this but we'll have to pick and choose. And I think there's a part here where Jesus speaks directly to this issue of pleasure. So read with me. John 17, 1. Jesus spoke these things and he looked up to heaven and he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son so that the son may glorify you. Since you gave him authority over all people so that he may give eternal life to everyone that you have given him. This is eternal life, Zoe life that they may know you, the only true God and the one that you have seen, Jesus Christ. I have glorified you on the earth by completing the work that you have given me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with that glory that I had with you before the world existed. I've revealed your name to the people that you gave me from this world, and they were yours, and you gave them to me, and now they have kept your word. So let's go to verse 20. I pray not only for these, my disciples, but also for those who are to come. He says, who believe in me through their word. May they all be one as you, Father, are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I've given them the glory that you have given me, so that they may be one as we are one. I am in them and you are in me, so that they may be made completely one that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved me as you have loved them. Father, I want those that you have given me to be with me where I am so that they will see my glory which you had given me because you loved me before the world's foundation. Righteous Father, the world has not known you. However, I have known you and they have known that you have sent me. And so I made your name known to them and I will continue to make it known 
so that the love that you have loved me with may be in them and I may be in them. Yeah, there's a lot there. <laughs> just even just reading it, there is a lot there. There's a whole extra year worth of preaching right there. But I think the key for me comes when Jesus unashamedly in a culture of money, sex, and status for the last 100,000 years of human history, he says, you know what Zoe life is? Not just existing and breathing, but God quality life. He says it here in verse three, this is Zoe life, that they may not know about you, that they may not practice religion, go to church every now and then, but that they may know God, that they may truly know God. He says, you want pleasure? You want pleasure forevermore to the depth of what your soul has been made for? Find it unashamedly in God. Unashamedly. You know, John Piper, he's this preacher from the U.S. and the Southern Baptist Convention. He wrote a book in the 70s called Desiring God. And he speaks about this term that we use in psychology called a hedonist. You know what a hedonist is? A hedonist is someone who says the greatest purpose of life is pleasure. So I'm going to set my heart on pleasure wherever I can find it. Then you are a hedonist. And he says Christianity proper is Christian hedonism. Why? Listen to what he says. He says, the longing to be happy is a universal human experience. All of us want to be happy. And it's good. It's not sinful. We should never try to deny or resist our longing to be happy as though it were a bad impulse. Instead, we should seek to intensify this longing and nourish it with whatever will provide the deepest and the most enduring satisfaction. And you know what the deepest and most enduring happiness is found in? Only in God. Not from God, but in God. God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him. Friends, our church's name is Doxa Deo, the glory of God. The glory is everything that God is. It's the weightiness, the fullness of God. And Jesus says, if you want to experience the most deep pleasure this life has to offer, you will have to find it in the Doxa of Deo. Can I ask you this morning, if you're a Christian, are you just absolutely bored out of your mind with religion? Are you just yawning your way through faith and a bit of reading here and there and going to church every sixth week, some of you guys. Uh, I'm just throwing it out there. Are you just going through the motions? Because what Jesus is offering, he's saying, this is what I want you to have, to be awed by God again. To be overwhelmed, overcome with God again. There's no answer to that differently, friends. There's no practice I can give you. There's no rhythm you can have at the very depth. We say as Dr. Day, we want to raise up city changers who in every sphere of life that we can reach the lost and heal the pain and restore what's broken in our city. You know where that begins? By being absolutely overwhelmed by the doxa of Deo. God. You want pleasure? Go after God. And why this is so amazing in this passage is in this passage, we get a glimpse as Jesus is praying in the, the presence of his disciples before he's about to be crucified. He's praying to the Father. But not just here, we see just him connecting with his Father. We also see the fact that we're getting a glimpse into something of the inner workings of God himself. What is God? How does God work? What is that thing that you are going after that you may be bored with, that you're yawning through? I want to say today, man, I want you to be absolutely awed 
overwhelmed, stunned by who God is again. And we're going to get a glimpse into the very nature of God in this prayer. This is the deep stuff of who this God is. And so three things I'm going to just quickly ask you to do is on a weekly basis, you're going to say like, what's the magic technique? There's no technique, friends. It's still the same three things as always. The Word of God, the Spirit of God, the people of God. The Word of God in the Scriptures, the Spirit of God to just pray, just communion with God. And the people of God, community, you have to go after, receive, experience, pleasure in God himself. If you want to get out of the boredom of faith, you need to weekly say, God, I want to sit with absolute raptured tears in my eyes in the mornings as I'm just communing with you. I don't want pleasures. I want pleasure. So here are the three things that I think if you want pleasure, if you want the greatest pleasure in life on a weekly basis through the word and the spirit and the people, find pleasure in God's perfect love. In his perfect love, number one. Read with me, John 17. It says, Father, the hour has come. So what? Glorify your son so that he may glorify you. Verse four, I have glorified you on the earth by completing the work you gave me to do. Now, Father, glorify me in your presence with that glory that you had before the world existed. Anyone seeing a pattern in these words here? Glory, God. What's happening? It's saying that Jesus is giving glory to the Father. The Father is giving glory to Jesus. And it's not just happening here in this moment of prayer. We see that in verse 4 and 5, it says that this has been happening before anything existed. And then later, if we, you know, just a couple of weeks ago, we spoke about John 16, where Jesus speaks about the Holy Spirit. We see it's not just the Father and Jesus, but it's the Spirit as well. This is this doctrine that we call the Trinity. It's beyond comprehension, but it says that God is one, one in essence, but three in person. And into eternity, before anything was anything, this God has been glorifying in himself. The Son has been glorifying the Father. The Father has been glorifying the Spirit. The Spirit has been glorifying the Son. And this dance has been the reality of everything before anything was. This is what's been happening. And what does it mean? You think like glorify, yo, that's, that's high church language. What is this? To glorify is to do three things to someone, to something. It's to praise or appreciate that person, number one. Secondly, it is to serve that person. And thirdly, it's to do all those things, praise them, adore them, serve them, doing it out of love. Not compulsion. I will compel you to serve me and love me and adore me. No, it's doing it out of Love. That's why Jesus says in verse 24, highlight this. He says, they will see my glory, which you've given me. Why? Because you loved me before the foundation of the world. So the Father and the Son and the Spirit from all eternity, they have been communicating and pouring out love and joy and, and appreciation to one another in, in ways that are infinite, that we cannot understand, in, in multitudes that we cannot understand. And so what does this mean? It means that this perfect ancient love is the nature of God. If you ask me, what is God? And some people will say, it's cheap to say he is love. No, it's not cheap. The most deep nature essence of God is love. That's why 1 John 4 can so unashamedly say, God is love. 
Because into all eternity, that is what he has been doing. Now, what does that say to us about this God that I might feel bored with, but I want to be enraptured with? The first thing it says is that this God is infinitely happy. Who's ever thought about that? You think about God as this angry old man, maybe, or the, 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 the force of the universe, or, you know, Mother Nature or something like that. But this, you know, the Bible says this God, we find in Scripture, is infinitely happy. No other religion can say that. You know, for instance, Eastern religions would say that God is this impersonal force that you just find kind of in everything. So the fact that God has no personality, it means that that God, by implication, cannot be happy, infinitely happy. Traditional African religion would say that, yes, God is the one who is behind all things, the creator, but he is unipersonal. He's alone. Now, what's the challenge with that? It means that this God does not have anyone to love. So why would a God like this create to receive love and adoration and worship, but a tri-personal God, one in essence, three in person, this God has infinitely, forever before anything existed, this God has been pouring out love and joy and glory and adoration, and this dance has been happening, this God, because that love and adoration is not compelled, it's received freely, there's nothing more beautiful than that. If someone loves you, not because they have to, but because they choose to, that's joy. This God has had infinite joy forever. He's infinitely happy. This is the God that invites you to know Him. But secondly, we see why did God then create the world? Because think about that. As I said, this, this unipersonal God, why would a God who is alone create a whole world of worshipers and servants. It's because this God wants to receive love and worship and service. It's like 99.9% .9 of all the world religions, they create to receive. But this God that we find in Jesus, perfectly represented, this God does not need your love, does not need your service, does not need your joy, because He's had it into all eternity. So why would a God like that create? And the obvious answer is not because he wants to get praise and love and adoration, because he wants to share it, because he wants to open up the circle, the dance. He wants to say, come and step into what has been happening into eternity. That's why Jesus says in verse 22, I want them, highlight this, to have the glory that we have. I want them to have it. Verse 23 says, I want them to have that closeness that we have. And the third thing it then tells us is not just how he created, but, or not why, but how he created. So think about this. If this God has created out of himself in his image, it says mankind is created in his image and likeness, it means this. The only way for you to find true happiness Zoe life, true pleasure is to find joy in what God finds joy in, because you made in his image. And where does he find joy and happiness? In receiving glory? No, in giving glory. He's been doing it forever. So the only place you can truly ever find joy and glory and happiness and pleasure is to do what you were made to do. To not fight for status, attention, glory, but to Give those things to those around you. If you are not doing that, you are literally cutting against the grain of the universe. 
You are cutting against the grain of your design. We are made to not be for self, but to be for the other, because that is who God is. And there is no greater other than God. If I am not going to find pleasure in this God, I will walk around stuffing sand into my mouth forever. So I want to encourage you, man. If you are bored, if you feel this dry religion is getting to you, then you need to start seeing times in the Word and with people and pray and communion with God as a time to seek and find not just information, but pleasure in the perfect love of God. And how will you do that? The only way we can do this, friends, is if God is the very center of our lives and we give Him glory above everything else. Above everything else. You see, there's no... There is no such thing as worshiping nothing. You know what the word worship means? It means worth-ship. I'm giving worth to something. And guess what? All of us got up this morning worshiping something. There's no option as not worshiping, not worthing, because you are made in the image of God. You will glorify something. The question is just what? Every single person you drove past this morning on your way to church, they are worthing something. The question is simply, what? And no matter how much you tell me, no, Joe, I'm modern. I'm scientific. I'm secular. I am a critical thinker. I do not worship. You do not have an option. You are worshiping something. And as we've said many times, how do I find out what that is? We can't go into all of that this morning, but maybe just to think about this again. Most probably, the thing that makes you most excited, fearful, insecure, defeated, unstable, not a little bit unstable, a little bit defeated, a little bit excited, but what makes you most excited, the thought of it, or if I were to lose this, the most unstable and secure, there's a good chance that is pointing you to what your actual God is. So here's an example. We can use anything. Money, sex, status, career, friends, my, my kids' well-being, safety in this country. Anything can be the thing that I put worship into. But here's an example. If, if recently you... You were absolutely embarrassed, and, and someone spoke such a harsh word to you. You failed just horribly. And that word that the person spoke to you, it's not just been bothering you, but it has broken you. You are absolutely wrecked on the inside. You know what's happened? Is you are putting more weight and glory into what other people think about you than what God thinks about you. That's my, it's my God. It's my worth-ship. And friends, I can find worth-ship in the most beautiful things this world has to offer. The good gifts of God, money, sex, status, career, friends, those are beautiful gifts of God, but they are not weighty God things. You are worshiping something. The question is, what? And as long as I'm trying to get my own glory through all these things, I will never be truly satisfied. You will eat that beach, and you will never, never have pleasure. So on a weekly basis, can we stop going through motions and can we find pleasure in the, in the everlasting perfect love of this God? But secondly, on a weekly basis, through the Word, the Spirit, the people of God, can you start asking God, I want to find pleasure in the self-sacrificing heart of this God? The self-sacrificing heart. In John, Jesus is always saying, my hour has not yet come. He's saying it all throughout the book. My hour has not yet come. And now, what does it say here? John 17, 1. Father, 
the hour has come. The hour has come. And in the book of John, the hour is referring to what? The death of Jesus, the embarrassing, horrendous death on a cross, this tortured moment that Jesus will go through. This is the hour. Now, here's the strange thing. Verse 5, he says, Now, Father, glorify me in your presence with that glory that I had with you before the world existed. So what is he saying? I have lost my glory. I've lost it. And that's not a surprise to us. Philippians 2 says that as God came into the form of a human being, the one thing that resonates with you and I more than a book or a song or a, or a movement or a political party is a person. And so God comes into the human experience in the form of a person. And what happens as he takes up that human nature, as he, he lowers himself, he, he condescends to who you and I are, he loses his glory. It says he empties himself, Philippians 2, of his glory. So, I mean, this infinite God, the God that you cannot look at the holiness, the perfection, the, the sheer energy and love and who this God is, you didn't need to have sunglasses anymore in Jesus to see him now. He's covered. He's in flesh. He's just, he's just normal. He's just average. The Bible says he's not even good looking. All these, all these shows. I mean, The Chosen is the best one to watch. But all these other movies, man, where everyone's white in the Middle East. Um, that's like one of those. And, and, and everyone's like a hair model. It's like Jesus is always so good looking. It's like, guys. Bible says he was not even good looking. He was not something that you would see and think, wow. No, he's just plain. He's lost even human glory. And so now the one who had infinite glory for all time and who came to this earth, died on a cross and lost his glory. What does he say now in this prayer? Now he said, I'm asking for this. Now, verse one and five, father, the hour has come. What? glorify me. Give me back that glory. The glory that I've given up, now is the time to give me that glory. And maybe you say, okay, wait, what I think he's saying is, you know what? I come to earth. It's horrendous. I'm going to die this death. It's ugly. It's, it's shameful. And then when I'm dead, three days later, God, raise me up again. Glorify me. Seat me at your right hand. And I will ascend. Glorify me in that way. But that's not what he's saying. He's not saying the resurrection will be the moment that he's glorified. What does he say? Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son so that I may glorify you. He's saying in this hour, glorify me. So what is Jesus saying? He's saying the ultimate expression of the doxa of Deo, the glory of God, the ultimate expression of who God is will not come after the cross. It will come to us in the cross. If you want to understand the absolute breathtaking love and grace and joy and hope and newness of this God, not a God that you yawn your life through, but a God that you just sit in the mornings and you are just in tears about who this God is. You don't see his glory after the cross. You see his glory in the cross. The hour has come. Why does he say that? It's because he says, you know what, when I'm lifted up and I'm beaten to a pulp and I'm ugly, I'm horrendous, you don't want to look at me. When I do that for you, that will be the ultimate expression of the glory of God. Friends of this God, the self-sacrificing heart of this God doesn't capture me. Nothing more. Nothing. 
We say that we are city changers in Doxodeo. City change will never happen if this self-sacrificing heart of this God doesn't melt me, compel me, break me, lift me, rearrange me. This is the God who says, my glory is found in the moment that I lose everything for you. This is the God who invites you. He says, come and find pleasure, not in what you can get from me, in me. So what does this mean to each of us, just personally? Two things. The first is that it means that servanthood is the meaning of life. Servanthood is the meaning of life. Our culture says what's most important is you. You need to self-express. You need to, you need to find your inner joy. You need, to, you need to do you. And yes, you can have friends and do some good things for other people, but at the end of the day, the most important thing you can do is you. To find you, to express you, to satisfy you. But in God, we see there is no greater beauty than giving beauty to beautify someone else. There is no greater glory than to glorify someone else so that they would be glorified. There's no greater service than to serve someone else so that they would be served and loved. In other words, what we see in this broken moment on a Roman cross 2,000 years ago in the Middle East We see literally the very nature of the heart of God. And what do we find in there? Unselfishness. An other-orientedness. This God doesn't say, come and serve me. This God says, I come to firstly serve you. And when that melts your heart, you will lose your life for me. So what are we saying, friends? We're saying that in God, the way up is what? Down. To serve others is the way that I find pleasure. The the world says, no, put yourself at center stage. Live for yourself. Give to yourself. Find yourself. And God says, if you want to find yourself, lose yourself. Serve God, firstly. Serve others infinitely, and you will find pleasure that you've never experienced. The very heart of God is self-sacrifice. C.S. Lewis, I think, puts it so beautifully in The Weight of Glory. He says, For in self-giving, if anywhere, we touch a rhythm, not only of all creation, but of all being. If you want to find the resonance that your heart has always been looking for, you don't find it in anything. It comes in this one place, in self-giving. Why? Because you were made for it. You were made like it. The place where self becomes secondary is the place that you find yourself because you are tapping into who you were made to be, your original design. Your original calling is found not in self, but in the absence of self. In fact, the more selfish you get, the more away from God I get. The more Satan-like I get, scary as that sounds. Because the more I give of myself that others would be raised up, the more God-like I become. And, and the Bible goes even so far as to say that if I give myself fully to that selfishness, and I say, no, you know what? In my heart, I would say it to other people, but in my heart, my convictions, the way that I use my time, treasures, and talents, the absolute conviction in my heart is that, you know what? God is not actually the most important. Other people are not the most important. I am what's most important. There are things that I can see this God sees as important, but that doesn't fit me doesn't fit my lifestyle, doesn't fit my comfort. And so, because of that, I am going to choose me. It says that when I choose me infinitely, 
I am becoming and going to hell figuratively and literally. God says, then yes, I will give your your whole self over to that selfishness. And yes, then you can choose to be alone forever. You know what that looks like? You know what that feels like? Is if we don't know, this is the second implication just for us today. I see our recording is not going to make it. That's all right. Here's the second thing is if you don't understand the depth of this Trinitarian God, you will not think what Jesus did for us is big. It's not a big deal. He had some, you know, difficult evening, three days, it's over again. But if I understand what and who this God is, it will absolutely wreck you. Think about this. If someone today, maybe you're a guest here this morning, I've never met you before. If at the end of the service you tell me, Joe, I hated everything about this service, honestly. And I want to say, in fact, I hate you and I never want to see you again. Now, I've never met you, so, but still, that would kind of hurt me, to be honest. But if one of my lifelong friends told me, I hate you, I never want to see you again, that would hurt even more. If one of my kids told me, I hate you, I never want to see you again, man, that would be very painful. No offense to my friends. And if my wife told me, I hate you, I never want to see you again, man, that would wreck me. Why? What's the principle? The deeper the depth of the love shared between parties, the deeper that brokenness of isolation hurts us. And so I want to say, I know that some of you guys have gone through horrible things in your life. You've experienced such deep pain and disappointment and hurt, and I am sorry for that today. I honor you that you're even just here. But can I also say that no person on earth has ever experienced an ounce of what Jesus experienced on the cross when he said, Father, why have you abandoned me? Because a God who has had infinite love and joy and passion and glory just poured out in the dance of eternity for that God to be on a cross and say, I have been abandoned. Why? For you. That changes me. That doesn't make me go to church every now and then. That changes me from the inside out. You're like me and Eskom, we, we're trying to... So let me end then. I'll skip that last one. It's a story I've told before, but I think it's, it's helpful here. Max Lucado tells the story of a man who walks on the shore and he sees this fish plopping out of the water. Kind of awkwardly, and now the fish is like lying there. And he's like, oh my goodness, this fish, wow. And so he's like, I know what I need to do. I see this fish is like battling. So he gets a beer. Like he runs to the closest like shop, and he gets a beer, cold beer, nice beer, and he brings the beer to the fish, and he puts it next to the fish. It's like, whew, emergency averted fish. That was a close one. But here, you know, here's a beer, and the fish is like, and he's like, oh, my word. Okay, I know what to do. And so he goes and he gets his car and he parks his car next to the fish. And he's like, fish, you can have it. I'm giving you this car. I bless you. There you go. Man, that's a close one. But fish, there you go. There's a car. And the fish is like, Ugh. 
And he's like, okay, let me, let me go and get Playfish magazine. And, you know, I'll, I'll take out the center page and he opens it and he just lays it next to the fish. It's like, hey, you know, fish, I, I'll look away if you want to you know, take a look there quickly. You, like, luckily, we almost had a disaster here. And what does the fish do? You know, by this time. Why, friends? Because the fish was made for the water. He even looks disappointed. Something's fishy there. Because he was made for it, nothing else, as good as it is, will ever truly satisfy him. And so what does Jesus say? What does he say when he speaks to this lady at the well? He says, do you know what? This, this water next to us, everyone who drinks from this water again, you will get thirsty again. You will get thirsty again. That car, that marriage, that, that job, that new country, that new city, that new opportunity, that new body, you will get thirsty. Good things, of course. But he says, but whoever drinks from this water, they will never get thirsty.